Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we can, are continuing in our series in the book of Acts that we've been in for a few months now, and that we will continue in for three more weeks this week and two more, uh, and we will end in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. And then this summer, we're going to be starting a series, Genesis chapters 12 through 36, looking at the patriarchs of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, So I hope you'll join us for that. But this morning, we're jumping back into our series in Acts, Acts chapter 13, verses 13 to 43. I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's Word. We do this every Sunday to give honor uh, to God's revelation of Himself in His Word. So this is God's Word to us this morning. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Patphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. 
And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with him, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Isaiah 40 tells us that the grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Uh, Let me pray for us. God, I ask that this morning you would speak to us, that you would illumine our minds, that you would soften our hearts to receive your word, to hear from you, to listen, to be changed, and to walk out of here different because you have spoken to us. So would you remove me, the, the one who has the honor to preach your word, but would, would Christ be seen this morning? Would we experience you, Lord Jesus, in your word? And would you teach us and meet us wherever we are this morning? Some of us come this morning and we, Lord, we're hurting and we need you to meet us. Some of us come this morning and we're just bored with life and we need you to wake us up. Some of us come excited and thankful and we ask that you meet us there. Wherever we are this morning, we pray you meet us and change us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, during my junior year in college at Auburn University is when I began to feel the call to vocational ministry. Uh, Instead of pursuing medicine, which is what I thought I would do since my freshman year in high school. And, And during college, I emceed a weekly meeting for Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now called CREW. Uh, And I spoke some uh, at my fraternity on campus and a few other places, but I had never been asked to preach a sermon until my senior year at Auburn. And a crew at Auburn by my senior year had 1,000 people meeting regularly each week. Uh, So here I am, a 21-year-old, asked to preach a sermon at a weekly large group gathering for about 1,000 people. Uh, And on top of that, Uh, I told my friends who did not come regularly to this weekly meeting, who were not Christians, that I would be speaking. And so many came to hear me speak and to give my first sermon. And I was nervous and scared and anxious. And as I prepared, uh, I thought about all the people who might be coming. My friends uh, who were not Christians, what would I want to say? What would I want to preach about for my first sermon? Well, Acts chapter 13, Paul preaches his first ever sermon. What would Paul say? What does he want to preach about? Barnabas and and Saul are sent off on this short-term mission trip. It's two years, which is long-term for us now, but it was short-term for Paul and Barnabas. And they're sent off to Antioch and Pisidia. Now, that is a different Antioch than Paul and Barnabas' home base, as mentioned in chapters 11 and chapter 13, which Timothy preached about last week. Paul and Barnabas traveled to Antioch and Pisidia, which is the area called Galatia. These are the people, maybe that sounds familiar to you, that Paul writes the book of Galatians, New Testament epistle. So keep that in mind, because I'm going to come back to that later on in the sermon. So Paul and Barnabas arrive here in Antioch and Pisidia, and they go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And as was custom in the synagogue, there was a reading from the Old Testament. They read from the law, they read from the prophets, the reader would then sit back down, and they would offer an opportunity for anyone to stand up, share, and speak to preach. 
And so some of the rulers see Paul and Barnabas. Maybe they recognize them as visitors in the synagogue in this day. And so they send a messenger to Paul and to Barnabas. And verse 15 tells them, Brothers, Paul and Barnabas, if you have any word of encouragement, say it. So Paul stands up to deliver his first sermon. And we've already looked at a few first sermons in this series of Acts, if you've been here. We looked at Stephen's first sermon in Acts chapter 7, uh, Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 10, but now Paul, the Apostle Paul, hears the Word of God read in the synagogue and he seizes the opportunity to evangelize and to preach the gospel, to share this good news to the Jews who were gathered, to the Jews. And so Paul is preaching what Paul preaches is not himself. He preaches the glory of God seen in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, as we pray here every Sunday, that God would be glorified, Christ would be, would be made much of and honored as he preached. And I, and I heard a pastor describe Paul's sermon this way, that Paul preaches a gospel that declares the power of God, the patience of, of God, and then the provision of God. That's what we're going to look at this morning. The gospel that Paul declares is the gospel that declares the power of God, the patience of God, and the provision of God. So let me point out before I move into those three points, though, I just love verse 42. Look at verse 42. It says, and they begged him. They begged him to come back and share more the next Sabbath. Now that, I don't know how often that's happened for me, very rarely <laughs> has that happened. But golly, do we pray for that every Sunday here. That God would make the gospel so sweet to each of you. So sweet that you would long for more of it. That you would beg for more of it, no matter if I'm preaching or Timothy's preaching, Justin's preaching, whoever is preaching, that you would long and beg for more of God found in the gospel. So let's look at this gospel that Paul preaches. It's first, the power of God. Verses 16 to 17 says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. Of all the ways that Paul could have started this evangelistic sermon, he starts with the history of Israel. Now, I love what N.T. Wright wrote in his commentary. He says that it is dangerous to tell the story of Jesus apart from the history of Israel. In doing so, it could lead to weak and shallow theology. Now that's important. That's not just some commentary I'm quoting. It's important that we understand that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same. And that it is one story with one author. If we try to understand God by only reading the New Testament, we, we miss this much of the Bible and, and who God has revealed himself to be. We must understand the Old Testament if we want to understand the New. And if we want to understand Jesus, then we have to understand the God of the Old Testament. For Jesus fulfills all of which the Old Testament speaks about. So Paul roots his gospel presentation in the history of Israel, and in particular, the power of God in Israel. Paul could have talked about God's power in Genesis chapter 9 in bringing and sending the flood, 
He could have talked about God's power in destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, but he talks about God's power in the redeeming of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. With an outstretched arm, he delivered them from bondage and slavery. Now look again at verse 17. It says, God of his people Israel chose our fathers. Chose our fathers. The power of God is seen in his choosing of Israel. He is God, and therefore he does as he pleases, and it pleased him to choose Israel. God is able to choose whatever and whoever he pleases. Now, if you've ever heard someone identify themselves as a deist, you've heard, heard that terminology, deism or a deist. Thomas Jefferson is a famous deist. Deism is the belief that God exists, but God is not involved in the world. The, the deists kind of picture God as this clockmaker uh, who created the clock, wound it up, and then just kind of let it go and backed away. The deism believes that God created the world, but does not interfere with the world. God is uninvolved in the world. He is removed from the world, even though he is the creator. And what Paul is saying here is that that is far from who God is. On the contrary, God is actively and intimately involved in all of our lives and in this world. He chooses and He watches over us. He chooses and He watches over us. He chooses and chooses and chooses, which means He is God who holds the power to choose to allow certain things in our lives and certain things to miss our lives. In other words, our God is the sovereign Lord over everything. God chose Israel. He led them out of Egypt into the wilderness towards the promised land. God and His power was with Israel every footstep that they traveled. Every footstep. So listen to this. God did not display His power by choosing Israel because they were good or because they were smart, or because they were talented or good-looking. You know why God chose Israel? Because He decided to choose Israel to be His people. Because He decided to. God chose them and led them out because He wanted to. He wanted to. So let me bring this to our lives this morning. If you are a Christian this morning, it is because God chose you. God decided to pour out and continues to pour out His love and His grace and His mercy on you. It was not because you're smart or good or talented. It's because God saw you in slavery to sin and in bondage, and by His power, He chose you. you know, if, if I were to ask Rachel, my wife, Rachel, why do you love me? And she were to say, I love you because you're kind of handsome, you're a little smart, you're not too short, a little short, not too short. You're, you're a pretty good dad, right? You're an avid golfer, a hard worker, a decent yard worker, right? If she responded in that way about why she loved me, that's a problem. It's a little bit of a problem. Those may be things she likes about me. But there are going to be times, and there are times, when I'm a jerk, when I am mean, when I'm not a good dad. The things that she would have mentioned, if she would have said those things, they're, they're fragile, they're fickle, they're going to fade. They're going to be in and out. 
I need Rachel's love to me to be based on something more permanent. Her love to me and my love to her has to be based on the truth that on November 3rd, 2012, we decided to love for the rest of our lives. She chose me to be her husband. And I chose her to be my wife. That's why she loves me. Because she chose me. So we take great heart that God doesn't love us based on our performance or or how nice we've been. God loves us because He chooses to love us. And it's permanent. God's choosing of Israel and His display of His power was for a purpose. It was to transform Israel from a people in bondage to a people that are chosen and loved and holy and righteous. Which means... Which means if tragedy or heartache or suffering comes our way, God is in control. And He's intimately involved in our life. And God is powerful. And He will use those things to change us and to transform us. In the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, God has not removed His hand. He's not left us alone. He's not created the world and then backed away. He is intimately involved. And one of the greatest promises in Scripture is this promise, that I will never leave you nor forsake you. The power of God is I choose you. I choose you. It's the promise. I am with you. And do you know why that's one of the greatest promises in Scripture? Because one of our greatest fears is to be left all alone. To be all alone, especially when we're in trouble or when we're in tragedy. It's true, think about it, for a 10-month-old, like our son Henry, who falls and hits his face in one room, starts crying, but as soon as mom comes and scoops him up in her arms and says, I'm here, I'm with you, calms him down and it quiets him because he's no longer alone. It's true for a child who goes to school for their, for their first day of school, And the parent says, I'm going to be right here when you get back. I'm here and I'm with you. It was true for me when I first jumped off the ledge of the pool for the first time into my mom's arms and she says, I'm here. I've got you. I'm with you. That's true for people who are ending towards the end of their life, nearing the end of their life, their last months, and they know it's coming, they're dying. I think if you've ever seen the greatest TV show, maybe not the greatest, that might be exaggeration, but a great TV show, Parenthood. Have you ever seen it? Love it. Rachel and I watch it. Zeke Braverman, grandfather, lived an incredible life, has a great family. Zeke's nearing the end of his life. He has heart issues, and he's going into surgery, surgery on his heart, and he is terrified. He is so scared, and he's so anxious. And what comforts him is his wife, Camille, holding his hand, saying, I'm here. I'm with you. I will be here. What a promise that God has made. I am with you. He never leaves you. He will not forsake you no matter what. For those of you this morning that have experienced or maybe you are experiencing suffering, your heart is aching, you've experienced tragedy, please know God is with you and has not left you. God is powerful And He will work through and in the midst of your suffering to transform you. You know, I used to laugh a little bit and be cynical at the phrase, God is good all the time and all the time God is good. Have have you ever heard that? 
Many of you have heard God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. Uh, I used to get cynical at that because I used to think, and I still think this is true, sometimes that can be said as a way to kind of undercut pain and suffering, right? It's a, your pain is invalid, so God's good all the time, don't worry about your pain. Um, and I think that can happen. But this morning, based out of our text, I want to remind you that, that that is true, people of God. God is in control, and God is at work all the time. And all the time, God is good. He's chosen you. You are His. He will always be with you. And you know what believing this truth of the gospel does? It produces peace. Peace. And every one of you longs for peace, wherever you are. And believing God's love towards you is not based on anything about you, but just because He chose you gives you peace because it's permanent. You don't have to doubt where you stand before God. And in the midst of pain and suffering, when it seems like life is up and down and sometimes it's just more down than up, God is with you. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. That gives way more peace than a good night of sleep, a good time of meditation, a good afternoon of exercise, or money accumulating in your bank account. God shows you. He's with you. That's the power of God. The next thing Paul moves to in his sermon and this gospel presentation is the patience of God. Look at verse 18. It says, For about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. Israel, God's chosen people, freed from slavery in Egypt, heading towards the promised land. They would journey in the wilderness for about 40 years. And what does, God, what does Paul say God did during those 40 years? <laughs> he put up with them. He put up with them. God endured and was patient. I heard one pastor say that few things say God like His patience. God was patient with Israel. Their grumbling, their complaining, their hard-heartedness, their unwillingness to repent, God put up with them. And the imagery in the Greek is God caring for Israel like a nurse caring for a helpless child. He endured and was patient like one caring for a helpless child. Have you ever heard of the purple period of crying? How many of you heard of the purple period of crying? Give me some feedback. Show me your weight. Purple period of crying. How many of you experienced the purple period of crying? Any? Okay, let me tell you what the purple period of crying is. It is when your child just cries for no reason, and the parent cannot figure out why the parent cannot console the child at all, just hours of crying. Medical professionals tell you if this happens, <laughs> some wisdom, walk away for a few minutes, regroup, regather, and then come back in to care for your child. Because what can happen, and it happens, parents can snap, they become very impatient, and what they can do is can inflict harm on their child in the midst of their impatience. Now, I am grateful that our son Henry did not have a purple period of crying. <laughs> Because Rachel could tell you, my wife, and perhaps many of you could tell this as well, but I was not gifted with the character trait or the virtue of patience. Uh, things aggravate me quickly. Uh, I'm extremely impatient. Things just can get on my nerves. <laughs> they just get on my nerves. And praise the Lord that I'm not God. Right? Praise the Lord God's not like me and God's not like you. He is patient. And He's enduring. 
And He is long-suffering with His children. And when we are hard-hearted, and when we complain, and when we turn away, and we sin in the midst of our wilderness journey, when we are annoying and aggravating, and anyone in their right mind would tell us, you're getting on my last nerve, God puts up with us. He's patient, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Let me bring this again to our lives. What should it do? Christ sent for. What should, it do, what should this do in our life? Romans chapter 2 verse 4 tells us. It says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness, His patience, is meant to lead you to repentance? If God is all-powerful and sovereign, and we've already seen that He is, He has every right and ability to demand from us, snap His finger and make us obey. But God is not a God like that. He is not a God like Allah who demands and punishes if you don't. He is a God who wants us to choose to obey. Wants us to choose Him and His ways. And He works in our hearts to produce this choosing of Him by wooing us to Himself by His patience and by His love towards us. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to know God is not uninvolved in your life. God is at work. He's being patient with you. God could pour out His wrath on every single one of us this morning, but He doesn't. He withholds His wrath and He extends patience and loving kindness. And the reason is to lead us to repentance. If you're a Christian, God's patience toward us does not mean He doesn't care about our sin. It doesn't mean that we can abuse His love and His patience and continue in a life of disobedience. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, wrote about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. And Now, when I say grace, at this moment, think about God's patience. Uh, so, giving us something that we don't deserve. We don't deserve His patience, we deserve His wrath, but God gives us patience. So, costly grace, Bonhoeffer writes is seeing what God does for us, what Christ has done for us, and being willing to follow Him whatever the cost. Cheap grace is saying that you believe God's patience and you believe His kindness and love towards you, but then you trample on that patience and that love and that grace by continuing in your sin and by not repenting and following Him. We are not advocates of cheap grace here at Christ Central. We are advocates of true grace. True grace is costly grace, and we are going to preach this patience and loving kindness over and over to us. Even in the midst of our sin, God is patient and gracious to us. But it's purposeful. It's to lead us to repentance and to trust God with all of our life. I watched a movie a few months ago called Life of a King. Starring Cuba Gooden Jr., I just kind of stumbled upon this movie on Netflix. It's a true, true story about the life of Eugene Brown. Uh, Eugene Brown was a man who got sentenced to prison. And while in prison, he was taken under the wing of a man called the Chess Man. That was his nickname, the Chess Man. And so the Chess Man teaches Eugene how to play chess and how chess is much like life. And, and so Eugene is released from prison and uh, he gets a job as a janitor in a local high school, very hard, very rough high school in his old area of Washington, D.C. 
And one day, as he's the janitor, the principal is in need of someone to watch detention. So some of the students in detention are the drug dealers of the local drug lord. And Eugene knows this world because this is the world he ran before he got put into prison. So Eugene decides he's going to teach this class, these students, chess. And in his mind, he's going to teach them about life. And he ends up getting a house away from the school, renovating it, calling it the chess house. It's where the chess club, the students would learn and they would play and they would learn about chess, but they'd learn about life. And Tahim was one of the students who sold drugs in the class. And Tahim was disrespectful to Eugene, wouldn't listen, talk back, would get up in his face, didn't trust Eugene, but Eugene continued to be patient, continued to invite Tahim into the game of chess, continued to invite him into learning, and it took a long time of putting up with Tahim before he finally trusted and would listen to Eugene. Eugene had to watch one of his students get murdered during a drug deal. He put up with a lot. He endured a lot, hoping for change in these students, and in particular, Tahim. And as Tahim was won over, he began to trust and began to learn the game of chess. (laughs) And he actually became one of the best chess players in the country. True story. And he would look to Eugene as his father the one who loved him and was patient with him and who put up with him. God puts up with us. Our not listening, our hard-heartedness, our complete disobedience. He puts up with us and is patient and long-suffering. And if we understand what God does for us, then we should trust him with our whole life and allow him to lead and to shape us. For God's patience, when understood, breaks our hearts, our hard hearts. It should cause us to follow him, whatever the cost. After Paul preaches about the power of God and the patience of God, he goes into the longest portion, not my longest portion, but his longest portion of the sermon, and he talks about the provision of God. Look at this lastly. Paul briefly talks about in verse 20 the period when God provided Israel with judges, but then he immediately ties the gospel of Jesus into the provision of of a king, and in particularly King David. Uh, there are numerous retellings of, his, of Israel's history in the book of Acts, uh, all from different perspectives, teaching different uh, history lessons. Uh, Stephen retells the history of Israel in Acts chapter 7, but it was from the people's perspective. And it was a story of failure and rebellion. But now Paul retells the, the history of Israel from God's perspective. And this is a retelling of the story of promise and fulfillment. What God promised to King David and to Israel was fulfilled in King Jesus. And the reason that we can believe that God kept His promise, Paul preaches, is because of the resurrection of Christ. Look at verses 32 to 33. It says, And we bring you the good news, the gospel, that what God promised to the fathers, this He fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. The resurrection is not just to be celebrated on Easter. The resurrection, it is daily to be celebrated, and it is the anchor of our faith, brothers and sisters. So then Paul continues in verses 33 to 35, and he quotes Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, Psalm 16. Again, how Christ is the fulfillment of this whole Old Testament. And then verses 38 to 39, he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, 
that through this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Here's what Paul is preaching to the Jews. The Jews gathered here in the synagogue. Salvation is found not in your performance to the law. Redemption is not found in how well you obey the rules. Rather, it is found by faith in the one who fulfilled the law and the prophets. Faith in the promised one, Jesus, is all that God requires. See, Paul was preaching justification by faith alone in Christ alone. That one receives their identity as a child of God, a beloved son and daughter of God, not based on their obedience to the law, but by faith in the faithfulness of God in Christ. When Timothy and I went to Nashville last summer, we went for a nine-day intensive that was incredible and quite intense. And, And one of the things that they asked us to do towards the end was to draw what they called a life egg. A lot, big picture on a big, big post-it. Draw an egg and then in there draw pictures of the major events that happened, occurred in your life as you grew up. And, and this was hard and intense. And uh, at the top right-hand corner above the egg, they asked us to write, now write out all the rules that you grew up with in your household. Spoken and unspoken. All the rules that... Daniel grew up with in the Mason household, spoken and unspoken. And I began to think, and began to think, okay, sit up. No smacking, no elbows on the table while eating. Always say, sir and ma'am, get up. Didn't hurt that bad. Get back in there, you can do better. Do your best, be the best, smile. Make eye contact when somebody talks to you. Look out for others. I can keep going. These were the rules that we in the Mason household lived by growing up. And my obedience to these rules won me favor. And I found or I thought that if I did not live up to these rules, I was not getting approval. And here's the truth. All of you, myself included, we all live by certain rules. All of you had family rules, but all of you have your own rules that you've set for yourself that make you feel good if you live up to and make you feel unlovable if you do not live up to. Whatever those rules are, it's what we look to for our identity, feel good about ourselves, and these rules lead us to a picture of what we think our life should look like. And that could be being a good or the best businessman or best businesswoman, or being the greatest mom or the greatest dad, or being the nicest, or always smiling, or being the toughest being good. And let me tell you that living by rules will crush you. They will crush you and they will burden you. I know it because I often try to live this way. It is enslaving and it is restricting. Now remember I told you that the book of Galatians is the same audience that Paul's preaching to here. Paul is encouraging, he's exhorting them in the book of Galatians to not look to obedience to the law for their identity. Don't look to your performance, to, to the rules to be your justification, but look to Jesus and trust in Christ alone. And Paul continues in Galatians and says, you, we don't start this way as Christians and then move on from it. We don't start by, by 
tr- trust in Christ by faith alone and Christ alone for our salvation and then graduate from it. We, we don't gain our identity after we've become Christians by our obedience to the law. And, and that's what he rebukes the church of in Galatians. Listen to Galatians 3, verses 1 to 3. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you begin by grace, pretty much? And he says, are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you so foolish having th- thinking that you begun by grace, now you continue by your own effort? Fools. Call them fools. At the end of the movie Saving Private Ryan, Tom Hanks goes to find Private Ryan in, hoard- in order to send him home. And he finds him, but Tom Hanks is dying. And as he's dying at the very end of this movie, he tells Private Ryan this, something beautiful has been done for you. Go earn it. Go earn it. And good night could I motivate you if I wanted to preach like that. And many preachers do. Something beautiful has been done. Now, church, go earn it. Go do something. That is not the gospel. I'm sorry. It is not the gospel. The gospel is not something beautiful has been done for you. Now go earn it. The gospel is something that's been beautiful, been, something beautiful has been done for you. Receive it. Believe it. The gospel is grace upon grace upon grace. It's not grace and then performance. It's grace and then grace again. It's what it ends in verse 43. He urged them to continue in the grace of God. So let me bring it again to your life, to my life. What this means for us, if we believe this, that everything's been given to us in Jesus, it gives what Paul says in verse 39, that we are freed from everything that the law could not free you from. It gives freedom. Freedom. When we live trusting the promises of God to us in Jesus, that our identity is found in what Christ has done for us, we are free We're free to risk. We're free to fail. We're free to step out in faith. We are free. Now, not to talk too much about marriage, but when, but let me talk about marriage. Uh, When Rachel chose to marry me, it gave me great confidence. And in marriage, I found that I'm free. Whether Rachel likes it or not all the time, I'm free to be me. Free to be honest. I'm free to fail. I'm free to confess struggle. All because I know Rachel chose me. But also because I believe in the character of the one who made a promise to me. I trust Rachel's heart to never leave me or forsake me. Therefore, I am free to be who I am in our marriage. Brothers and sisters, that's our promise. In Christ, forgiving of our sin as far as the east is from the west. The righteousness of Jesus imparted to us. Sons and daughters adopted. That's our identity. And we can trust the promise of the one who made it. Because he is faithful and the one who fulfilled his promise in the resurrection of Jesus, that is our anchor, fulfills his promise to us, his children. This gospel that Paul preaches, that we preach here at our church, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a gospel about the power of God, the patience of God, and the provision of God. Would we believe it? And would God plant it so deep in our hearts 
that he would give us a daily taste of who he is in the gospel so that we, like those in Antioch, would beg for more. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would, God, you would cause us to long for more, that the word of God would would be sweet and honey to our souls, that we would see you, Lord, as one who is powerful and patient, the one who has provided all that we need, that, God, you would cause us to trust you and to believe that's all you ask. And you woo us to yourself, so would you woo us this morning? Wherever we are, wake us up to who you are, that we would trust you yet again this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.